Peace and blessings. It's been a very long time. My name is Omar J. DeJesus, and I'm the host of Second Chance Voices of the Unheard. My podcast talks about the second chance people received after doing time in an institution, innocent or guilty, while changing a poisonous narrative of prisoners' perception. For the most part, people returning to society are outcasted. So my job is to give people an opportunity and a platform to tell their stories. Everybody deserves a second chance. So how everybody is doing? I haven't done one of these sessions in a very long time. It's because I was going through some personal issues that I was dealing with. And for the most part, Truthfully speaking, it got the best of me. And it's life. There's nothing really you can do about it. Things happen. And you just got to look at it for what it is and make adjustments. And you make the best out of a situation. That's what you should do. But some people don't. And for me, sometimes I overthink things. And it creates a problem. Because within that problem lies other problems because you start thinking about other things that don't happen um, but honestly that's something that I've started that was something I never have done when I was younger I really didn't think much um, but now that I am older and I ex- have experienced a, high, a whole lot of things I am a thinker and I think about things I do before I even react or things I do before I want to do you know if you understand. So today, I'm going to be talking about character. This is what the content of this show will be speaking on. And the reason why I'm speaking on character, it's very important. Character is power. For people to understand, character is power. Character is power. That's like the person that you are, the person that you are or have become or or are becoming, you know, people don't know what character is. Character is defines a person. It's similar to personality, but character is a little different. It can resemble personality. So I'm going to speak a little bit about it, and I'm going to give you the etymology of character. Where did it come from, the origins and stuff like that. So character, like honor, it's a word we take for granted and probably have an affinity for, but likely struggle to define and articulate. It's a world most men desire to have ascribed to them, and yet the standard of its attainment remained rather vague in our modern age. It's certainly not a word that's used as much as it once was. Cultural historian Warren Sussman researched the rise and fall of the concept of character, tracing its prevalence in literature and the self-improvement manuals and guides popular in different eras. What he found is that the use of the term character began in the 17th century and it peaked in the 19th century. Susan 
Sussman writes that embodied a culture of character. During the 1800s, character was a key word in the vocabulary of Englishmen and Americans, and men were spoken of as having strong or weak character, good or bad character, a great deal of character or no character at all. Young people were admonished to cultivate real character, high character, and noble character, and told that character was the most priceless thing they could ever attain. Starting at the beginning of the 20th century, however, Sussman found that the ideal of character began to be replaced by that of personality. But character and personality are two very different things. As society shifted from producing to consuming, ideas of what constituted the self began to transform. The rise of psychology and the introduction of mass-produced consumer goods and the expansion of leisure time offered people new ways of forming their identity and presented it to the world. In place of defining itself through the cultivation of virtue, people began to express themselves through hobbies, dress, and material possessions. Sussman observed this shift through the changing content of self-improvement manuals, which went from emphasizing moral imperatives and work to personal fulfillment. The vision of self-sacrifice began to yield to that of self-realization. While advice manuals of the 19th century and some of the early 20th as well, emphasize what a man really was and did, the new advice manuals concentrated on what others thought he was and did. In a culture of character, good conduct was thought to spring from a noble heart and mind. With this shift, perception trumped in an intent. Readers were taught how to be charming, control their voice, and make a good impression. A great example of this is Dale Carnegie, How to Win Friends and Influential People from 1936. It focused on how to get people to like you and how to get others to perceive you well versus trying to improve your inner actual moral compass. Sussman argues that the transformation from a culture of character to a culture of personality was ultimately about a shift from achievement to performance. Sussman illuminates this difference by noting that while the words most associated with character in the 19th century were citizenship, duty, democracy, work, building, golden deeds, manhood, Outdoor life, conquest, honor, reputation, morals, manners, integrity, and above all. The word most associated with personality in the 20th century were fascinating, stunning, attractive, magnetic, glowing, masterful, creative, dominant, and forceful. There is nothing wrong with the cultivation of personality, and we've offered plenty of advice on here on the site. It can help you navigate the word world, form relationships, and become successful. It it can but personality is absolutely no substitute for character.
which should be the foundation of every man's life. Thus, what we will be exploring, the true nature of this largely forgotten ideal, will be doing so by tapping into the writings of the 19th and the 20th century when character was still king. So what is character? The, uh, the etymology of character is quite telling. The word comes from the Greek character for engraved mark, symbol or imprint on the soul, and instrument for making, and be traced further back to the words for to engrave, pointed stake, and to scrape and scratch. Amazing. So we're going to go to a little clip that I'm going to put it on for a little bit. And it's a little, it's a little, it's a contrast to character. Why you don't change. Basically, it's going to be talking about why people don't change. So he's going to explain why. And this is from a podcast called Art of Manliness Podcast. And he's going to be describing why people don't change. So just listen in. In your life. My guest today says such simplified solutions hugely miss the mark. He argues that if you ever want to change, it's more fruitful to understand why you don't than figure out why you do. And to understand that, you've got to go deeper, existential even. His name is Dr. Ross Ellenhorn. He spent his career facilitating the recovery of individuals diagnosed with psychiatric and substance abuse issues. In his latest book, How We Change and 10 Reasons Why We Don't, he's taken what he's learned in his work and applied it to anyone trying to change their lives. Ross and I begin our conversation with some of the reasons we don't change, including the existential pressure of feeling like you're solely in charge of making Making change happen, a dizzying amount of freedom and number of options for what to do with your life, and day-to-day factors which influence our level of motivation. From there, we turn to the role of hope and faith in psychology and how these forces can both boost and restrain your ability to change. We discuss the way a fear of hope can constrain your life, why you sometimes need to embrace staying the same in order to ever change, and the difference between good faith and bad faith. We discuss the idea that you don't develop hope, but you can develop faith, and how to build your faith in yourself through embracing humility and taking small steps. Russ then explains why he doesn't really give advice on how to change beyond finding the good in a bad habit, and how patience in your social environment can also help. This show's got some counterintuitive advice that will help you see your struggles differently after it's over. Check out our show notes at aom.is slash change. All right, Ross Ellenhorn, welcome to the show. Thank you. You work with people who've been in and out of the, the psychiatric system and, and trying to get help and they haven't been able to make changes. But this book is also geared just to regular people who have found change to be hard. And I think we've all experienced that to one extent or the other. You know, trying to quit smoking is hard. Trying to lose weight is hard. Controlling your anger, your temper is hard. And you always have this desire like I'm going to – this is the time. This is, mm-hmm. the, this is the thing it's going to be. I'm going to get it this time. But then you – you know, a week later, you know, <laughs> you're yeah. off the treadmill. Yeah. Um, so like, what what's going on there? Like, why is it so hard to make personal changes like losing weight, quitting smoking, being more patient with your kids? Yeah. And so, uh, you know, I learned why it's hard from these individuals who are having such profound problems with motivation and with accepting help. But it really is applicable to all of us, including you and me. It, 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 no one's free from this. And it's basically that 
every time you're trying to change something in your life, you're exposing something that's really terrifying, which is that you're kind of driving the bus at your life. And that's what existentialists would call existential accountability. And that causes anxiety. There's nobody really making things happen for me. I'm in charge. And if this life's going to have any depth or meaning to it, I'm in charge of that. And so every act of changing yourself is really this profound act of kind of shepherding your own life, right? You know, it's, it's, it's very interesting because think about what people did, at least at the beginning of COVID, in response to that. The, uh, the massive agility that people showed in changing their lives, right? But they did it in a group and they did it because they had to. That's actually easier, even though it's more massive than dieting. Because dieting is like, I'm on my own, I'm in charge of my life, and I'm making this happen. And so there's always that pressure of having to look at yourself and your own accountability every time you try to change something. No, yeah, I think that's, yeah, it's definitely existential. Like, freedom is so scary. We'd rather just, like, I'd rather have someone tell me exactly what to do so I don't have to think about this. Right, right. I mean, the, there's this fascinating, you know, work on, you know, why is it that Scandinavian countries, of people are so, so much happier? And there's all kinds of reasons. But one reason is less choice. In the United States, when you walk in, there's like 20 different cereals. You know, you walk into PGA Fridays and there's enormous menu. And that level of choice actually can become depressing. Well, yeah, and we also have just choices on how we want to live our lives. You know, 100 years ago, your choice was like, oh, my dad was a farmer. His dad was a farmer. I'll be a farmer. Right now, it's like, well, I can be a, a blogger. I can be a lawyer. I can be an accountant. I can be whatever. And that can be really terrifying to have to make that choice. Yeah. Yeah, that, that combined with a culture that says that because you're free, something's wrong with you if you don't achieve those things. So there's also a mythology in that, right? That everybody's sort of seen as this free agent that should be able to make their life become whatever it, it should be. You know, so there's like this, there's two things going on at the same time in our culture. One is this idea that wherever you are is sort of your, the, an expression of who you are. And the other is, you know, you're in charge of your life because there is some truth to that. The second part, you know, that you're in charge of your way you respond to the world. You're not always in charge of how, where you end up. All right, so there's a, this deep existential reason why it's hard to make personal change because it's scary to accept the fact that you're the one who's driving the bus of your life and you have all these options to choose from as to where to go. But there's also more day-to-day -day things that can either make us more or less motivated to change. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so so there's this field around us. And let, let, me, let me give you an example from the book and then I'll explain why that example is important. So I, I have a goal in my life to give more honest critical feedback to my employees because it's not something I'm very good at. And one day I needed to give one of my managers some feedback and I really felt like this was the opportunity to change that behavior. But I didn't sleep all the night before. It was kind of a muggy day. I felt lousy. All the excuses for not doing it started entering my head. You know, maybe I'll just do it next week or kick the can down the road some other way. And I was in New York City and I got on this elevator with a group of people and while we're going up, this woman spills her coffee and somebody in the elevator says, you know, I'm going to sprinkle a little sugar on that to make it congeal so it doesn't spread through the elevator. Another person grabs some napkins from their pocket and put it on it. And we got to like the fifth floor and this guy got out and said, that was the best elevator ride ever. And everybody started cracking up. 
And then we get to the 10th floor and this businessman gets out and he yells back to us, same time, same date next year, let's all meet here on the elevator. And we just lost it. And I got off of that elevator and I was totally prepared to give this manager feedback. Now, what happened in that elevator ride? Well, we all live in these fields and the fields are very complex and you cannot predict when those fields will shift. And the fields are basically, there's a bunch of forces moving you forward. There's self-esteem. There's all kinds of traits, your own self-confidence, your own um, mental agility. But there's also things like um, how good your days go. What happened to you yesterday? What's on your mind at that time? What's your socioeconomic class? What else is going on at that point? And then there's all these restraining forces. All these things holding you back, your self-doubt, socioeconomic reasons, all of those things. And so what happened to me that day was there was enough of an extra little bit of good stuff going on, sort of a sense of faith in humanity that pushed me over to the ability to actually change my behavior. And that's why one day you might be planning to diet and you can't diet. And then the next day you wake up and you're completely able to diet. That's because something has shifted in this field around you. All the forces holding you back, all the forces pushing you forward. And the way to think about it is each of us is sitting between those two forces at all times. Sometimes we're closer to our goal because either the positive forces are stronger and the negative forces are the same or the negative forces are less for some reason and we're pushing towards it. And then we're always in this field between these two things, moving back and forth. And then, like as we just discussed earlier about this existential anxiety, that's a restraining force. But what's interesting about that, just the, the fact of wanting to do something, to achieve a goal, make a personal change, actually can cause a restraint because we, we, we start freaking ourselves out. That's right. That's so great you point that out. That's exactly right. That the thing that changing comes with its own built-in restraining force. Right. There's other kinds of motivations where it's just basically these two fields, but change always has that existential accountability and it also always has hope. So hope is always there. Like if you're going to plan on losing weight, you're hoping to lose weight. And so there's always hope as a positive force forward. But the problem is that hope, too, has its restraining element because hope can lead you to profound experiences of disappointment and helplessness. And so if you've had enough experiences of disappointment, hope is actually scary. And that's part of why hope is both a positive force and a restraining force. Well, let's dig into this idea of hope more because this is the first like book of psychology that I actually where they where you where it deals with hope very seriously because you often read about hope in terms of like you know like a religious book or something like that. Mm-hmm. In this realm of psychology, humanistic psychology, what is like what does it mean to hope for something? It's just like want something that you don't have or can't see, or what mm-hmm. is it? Well, first of all, I want to point out what an insane world we live in that hope is not a central element of what we're talking about in psychology. And then we have all these weird terms that psychology and psychiatry has made up that have very little meaning, like depression, anxiety, that they don't really have a meaning attached to it when hope does, right? I'm hoping for this thing. I'm experiencing despair because I didn't get it. Like these words have been removed from therapeutic practices. It's very sad in a lot of ways because it treats people as if they're kind of like these broken things instead of recognizing they're dealing always with the same things everybody's dealing with, which is how do I hope for things and how do I deal with the despair of not getting them? So hope is not quite an emotion. It's sort of an emotion and a position. 
that makes sense. So hope is, in a way, it's it's similar to other things that are emotions and, and positions like paranoia. Paranoia is not just a feeling. It's a position towards life. And hope is this attitude in which you place importance on something you want and you start moving towards it. So every time you hope, you're actually attributing to something an importance. So if you, an example is, you know, your parents ask you what you want for Christmas or Hanukkah and you say a bike. The minute you say bike, that thing becomes this important thing to you. You also notice at that point that you lack a bike. So two things are going on at the same time when you hope for something. It becomes important and you recognize you lack it. That means that hope always implies risk because if you don't get it, you recognize something you've now appointed as important you don't have and you recognize you, you lack it. So every time you're trying to change something about yourself, you're going to be recognizing if you don't get it, you lack that thing that you want to change and it was important. And hope is this thing that moves you through uncertainty. You don't hope for something and know you'll get it. That's what makes it so evolutionarily important because hope is getting you through uncertainty to a goal. It moves you to the goal through uncertainty. It's As you can see <clears throat> from the clip that I played, why you don't change. That was a very, very powerful clip but also a segue for me because I want to talk about a little story that I've experienced in my life. Now, this person that you hear today isn't the person that you always would have heard. So when I was younger, I made a lot of bad choices. <clears throat> a lot of people see me as a terrible person, as a bad guy, bad qualities, because of the crime I committed. And in the underworld, for people that live that life, I'll be looked at like a god, in a sense. A respectable person, or quote-unquote, a real one. But for society at whole, I was... And maybe still looked at as a terrible person for what I did. But I don't want to digress. What I want to say is I'm talking about character. The character of person that I was on these streets was a person that was very serious, that didn't like anyone, and that was about his business financially. And if it was time to do some bodily harm to somebody, I was front line for that. That mindset was a toxic mindset. And that was the outcome of me landing myself in prison. So when I landed in prison and I did a lot of self-introspection on who I was at that time when I committed that crime, I didn't like anything about myself. There were some qualities and attributes and characteristics that I liked it about myself, but there was so much that I didn't. And I had to change because I was hoping, just like this guy said, hope is a good or a bad thing. Because when you hope, you give yourself room to grow into something. But also, <clears throat> hoping can sound like you may fall short because you're not so sure if it can happen. 
But I knew in my heart that I had to change because if I didn't change, I would have came out with the same mentality and that would have caused me to self-destruct again. And I couldn't afford that because I, I was hoping that things turn around for me in a positive way because I've met so many people in prison that had the same mentality but they never got another opportunity to come home. They had life without the possibility of parole. Here I am with an opportunity to go home after a certain amount of years of me finishing, but I still had opportunity to go home. I cannot go home with the same mentality that I went in. That would not be conducive for me or anybody. So I had to change, I had to. So that hope that I had was the goal that I set for myself from when I returned back into society because I couldn't come back the same way I was because though things happen, there was a lot of programs in, in prison that wasn't mandatory. Those were the best programs that I took by far a set of that state mandatory programs that they they offer you, that they make you take that don't show you nothing, that is the worst. But the programs that you volunteer and anybody that's been in prison know that them programs are better for you mentally, physically, and spiritually than any state mandatory programs in prison. And there were so many people with the same mentality. And if I didn't change, I would have came back. And I thank God, I knock on wood, that it's been almost four years that I've been home and I don't try to commit no crime. I'm not with that because I took the time to get rid of some of the baggage that I was carrying. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not perfect and I'm still striving for perfection, but I'm working myself. These small steps is what's going to help me to these great big wins. Just got to take my time. So that's my story, and I want to put something on about the mind. The thing about your mind that a lot of people don't understand, but it's going to break it down. This is how powerful the mind is. A lot of people don't understand this. Sadly, we, we, we got the capacity to do a lot, and we take a lot of it for granted. Your brain is the most. Powerful weapon in the world. Once you put away your phones and your computers and all that we have nowadays, that's great. We're up to date. We, you know, you, but your brain is the only thing you have when you're going through depression. When, you, when you're going through hard times, you're going through death, real life, sh you can't Google that, man. You're alone. You're alone. You may have a shrink you're going to. You may have a best friend you're going to. But there's 24 hours in the day where you're alone in this brain. And your brain is talking to you in all kinds of ways. And it wants to control you, pull you in these different pockets. If you can't control your own brain and your brain controls you, you're you got to tell your brain where you want to go and how you want to go and how you want to get there. You got to control it. If not, it's over.
What existed for me was, okay, man, how am I going to make this work? And, I, and all I knew back then was hard work. The only way anything gets accomplished. That's all I heard back in those days. You got to work hard. You got to work hard. I'm not getting how to, I can't get this paragraph. I can't remember what the in this paragraph to pass this test to get in the military. Read again. Still not getting it. Read again. But if not getting it, write it out. And that's how I started learning. Okay, well, I can't. I got to write out everything I do. And then write it out again. And write it out again. And guess what happened? I got it. I got it. I can't swim. I'm negative buoyant. Go back again. I can't swim. Go back again. Go back again. Go back again. I got it. Helen Hansel was able to win any competition she took part in. She was known as the contest queen. I realized if I keep going back and going back and going back until the sh just becomes, your mind was safe. Okay, we're going to figure it out. Because he is not going to stop. It's not like I'm going to try one more time. No, I'm going to, it's just like alarm clock goes off. Boop, we're going back. I can't read right, we're going back. I gave myself no way out and my mind realized that. They said, okay, we're gonna adapt and overcome now. Like a lot of people say, trying hard. They, your mind knows, man. It knows this guy's bull, man, this guy's lying. There's no truth behind it. When I was in Navy SEAL training, people go, how were you there for 18 months? The program was only six months long. You were in three hell weeks in one year. No one's ever done that. How did you do that? I talk about the new norm. When I lived in a $7 a month place and I was growing up for a short period of time, I loved it. I didn't, know any, I, I didn't know any different. That was my norm. Once we moved out of that place, we moved to a $236 a month place. I was like, I never want to go back to that little piece of shit. But if you go back to that $7 a month place, and you realize this is where I live. This is all I got. Your mind says, Roger that. This is home. So when I was going to Navy SEAL training for 18 months and going back to all the hard parts over and over again, I told myself after the first time, I knew it was going to be a long journey there. My body was breaking down. It was, it was just how it was going on. I said, you know what? This is my new norm. So my mind said, it's like going to work. Like you go to work, you put your suit and tie on, I go into suffering every day, every day, suffering, being broken, duct taping my feet up, stretch fractures, shin splits, being broken. This is my new norm. And your mind says, if we're not broken, this ain't normal. We got to be broken. So then your mind starts to get tougher and tougher and more callous. People, how did you run on broken feet, broken, broken shins? My mind knew this is how we operate. We're in, we're in Navy SEAL training. This is what we are. I became hell. And that became my new norm. I gave myself no way out. There was nothing outside these walls of hell. Nothing. I became, I love God, but for a short period of time, I became the devil because that was hell. I became, I became the boss, the owner, the CEO of Navy SEAL training. That was my mindset. And that's how you get through things. You put yourself, you immerse yourself wherever it is, and you become that. You become that and give yourself no way out. When I was 297 pounds and I was fat as hell trying to be a Navy SEAL, 
the scariest thing in the world to me, even to this day, was that that could have been the rest of my life. I thought then I was trying hard. That's the scariest thing in the world. I thought then 297 pound working for Ecolab, spraying for cockroaches, making a thousand dollars a month. I thought that was me at my 100% potential. Come to find out a few years later, I wasn't anywhere near that. 106 pounds less, graduated Navy SEAL training, went on to do all these other things. Looking back on that, that was me trying hard. That's why people gotta understand what is in us. We have no idea until we start trying hard. And I mean really trying hard when you're obsessed with, hey, this is my new norm. My new norm is that, wow, this isn't always fun. It's not always meant to be fun. And that's when you know you're trying hard. As you can hear, <clears throat> the brother from the, the YouTube video, the most eye-opening 10 minutes of your life, basically speaks on the mind. How, many how, powerful, and people tell how powerful that is. It's very powerful. And the problem with that is that we don't know the power and potential that we hold until you force with the decision to change. As you can see me, I hit rock bottom and I had no choice to change. I had to if I didn't want to come back. I knew if I didn't change, I was going to spend my life in there and I didn't want that. I had a life, I had family, my daughter and people I love and care. So I had to take the time and it was forced. I had to, <clears throat> but I'm grateful for it. And I will never, ever, ever change it for anything in this world. Because then if it wasn't for that, the whole experience, a lot of things wouldn't have been the way it is for me now with schooling and how I am today as a person, what I've experienced helped cultivate and change me into a better person. And I thank God for them experiences, man. And if it's anybody in that same situation, I want you to listen to yourself and understand that it takes a process to change you may have to hit rock bottom to change. You may have to be forced into a situation to change. You may have to see things with your own eyes to realize that this isn't it. And when you realize that, you'll be tired of being tired. And you'll make change happen yourself if you want to change. If you don't want change, you're not going to change. But it starts with your mind and your body will follow. So my brothers, if y'all want to play the streets, God bless y'all. But there's nothing on the streets. If you don't change, just know that your life is going to be in and out of prison. And Lord, sorry to say that, it's not a good thing. So on that note, I'm going to leave off. I would like to say thanks to everyone who is listening to my podcast. Thanks to every organization that has helped me change my perspective of life. Quick shout out to Osborne, AVP, Pace, Defy Network, NYU's Prison Education Program. And Drive for Life prison program. And remember, no one wants to do time.
but we all need time. Good night. Peace and blessings.